Hey, welcome to Dissecting Love. Today, we're talking all about sperm competition. We'll be looking at some of the bizarre adaptations that males have evolved to deal with the risk of females sleeping around. And part of that journey is going to reveal what else is in semen apart from sperm. To help me explain some of this stuff, I met up with an old friend. Hi, my name is Angela Crane. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at UNSW Australia. Our main area of research is non-genetic inheritance, which is a fairly new field of research and quite controversial because we've always just assumed that the only thing we get from our parents is their genes. Um, it makes a lot of sense that our mothers can give us more than that. You can see if you're pregnant and you drink a lot of martinis and smoke, then that's probably not good for your baby. The thing that I'm most interested in is if the dad drinks a lot of martinis and smokes, whether that has any influence on the baby as well. So Ange spends heaps of time looking at fly sperm and trying to understand how dads can pass information to their offspring about their environment. The most common way that dads pass on this non-genetic information to their kids is through epigenetics, and that means changes in the way that the DNA is packaged in the sperm. Surprisingly enough, my research at the moment looks like it's got nothing to do with the sperm. And the difference is, in internal fertilizers, it's not just sperm. Actually, sperm make only about 2% of the ejaculate. There's so much other stuff that they're inseminating the female with, and... It looks like that could be having a massive effect on not only the female's behaviour, but also on her offspring development. It turns out that semen is packed with all kinds of things, of which only a tiny fraction is sperm. And scientists are only just starting to figure out what it is that semen contains. The most famous compound in fly sperm is the sex peptide, which is shown to make the females unreceptive to other males. Um, it actually reduces her lifespan, um, makes her lay more eggs, multiple blow-on effects from this one single sex peptide, and who knows what else is in there. You have other ones that make the female repulsive to other males, so it's not that she's not wanting to mate anymore, it's that nobody wants to mate with her anymore. Wow. <laughs> Which is pretty mean. Um, Right. So why would males want to manipulate females through their ejaculate? What purpose would that serve? <laughs> oh, if you could, why wouldn't you? <laughs> um, well, it comes back to the idea of sperm competition. So if a female mates with multiple males, then the sperm of those males have to compete to fertilise her eggs. So the males have to try and tip the scales to make sure it's their sperm that actually managed to fertilise. So sperm competition has caused animals to evolve these crazy manipulative ejaculates. The first question that came to my mind when I learnt this was, have humans evolved the same kind of things? Has sperm competition shaped our bodies and reproductive behaviour as well? I asked Anne what she thought. <laughs> um, me personally the thing that makes me think that something is going on is they do show that males show plasticity in their sperm by that I mean depending on the environment they're in they will change the quality of their sperm 
Now, if there was no sperm competition, you wouldn't expect to see that response. Everything that happens before mating is where you should be putting all your energy. Biologists like to talk about investing energy a lot. This area of biology is called life history theory. We like to think about the energy that an individual's got to spend as a limited resource, kind of like money. And you have to decide how you're going to spend that money on a day-to-day basis and also in the long term. Now, a lot of those decisions wouldn't necessarily be conscious ones, but might be predetermined by your biology. So when Ange talks about males deciding to spend more or less resources on customizing their sperm, she's talking about how evolution might have favored males that spent their energy in a certain way. Now, if there were no sperm competition in humans and women were always 100% faithful to their partners, then those males who invested energy in customizing their sperm and making high-quality ejaculates would be wasting energy and they would probably be outcompeted over time by males who just invested the bare minimum in their sperm. The fact that men adjust the quality of their sperm is probably an indicator that sperm competition is an important evolutionary force, or at least it was at some point in our evolutionary history. You can actually do a bit of maths to figure out how many matings need to be sperm competition scenarios in order for evolution to favour adaptations for sperm competition. And that number is pretty low. Only about 1 in 8,000 matings needs to be one where a woman has slept with two men in a short period of time in order to provide enough incentive for evolution to favour adaptations that help out men in sperm competition. And studies that have tried to estimate how often women do sleep with two men in a short period of time, um, they're quite variable between different cultures and between different studies, but they tend to give us a number that's bigger than this one in 8,000. So chances are the conditions are right for sperm competition in humans. So how are men changing their ejaculates in response to sperm competition scenarios? Well, some researchers have started by looking at what happens when a couple have been split up for a period of time. Because when a couple have been separated for a little while, that's when you see the highest risk of either of them having slept with someone else. Guys who have spent more time apart from their partner since they've last had sex tend to think that their partner is more attractive and also tend to think that other men find their partner more attractive than guys who have spent a whole lot of time with their partner since they last had sex. Guys who have spent less time with their partners also tend to be more interested in having sex with their partners and tend to think that their partners are more interested in having sex with them. Now when these couples who have been separated actually get around to having sex, what we find is that the number of sperm in the guy's ejaculate increases the longer the couple have been apart. And that relationship isn't affected by the length of time since he last ejaculated. What's more, you don't see this relationship if you collect semen samples through masturbation, only if they're collected during copulation. So somehow, his body is aware of the increased risk of his partner having slept with someone else and adjusts the number of sperm that it's putting into the ejaculate accordingly. Another clue that human men have evolved to deal with sperm competition comes from studies of men watching porn. Now when you ask men about the kind of stuff that turns them on, a lot of them fantasize about being with multiple women. But when you look at the kind of porn that's out there, 
porn is much more likely to involve one woman interacting with multiple men. And in a really interesting study, Kilgallen and Simmons compared the ejaculates of men jerking off to two different kinds of porn. In one treatment, they were masturbating to porn that just involved women, three women, in fact. In the other treatment, they were masturbating to porn that involved one woman and two men, and that's a sperm competition scenario. What they found was that the ejaculates of the men who were watching the porn that involved multiple men had a higher percentage of motile sperm. So in fact, their ejaculate was better quality than the men who were masturbating to porn that didn't involve any sperm competition. So if sperm competition is important in humans, does that mean that human men might have evolved these crazy manipulative ejaculates like flies? The answer is that we don't know yet. But what we do know is that human semen is packed with a really potent cocktail of hormones like cortisol, which increases affection, testosterone, which is involved in sex drive, estrone, which is a mood elevator and also helps the uptake of other hormones. Uh, there's also prolactin and serotonin, which are antidepressants, prostaglandin, which affects ovulation, oxytocin, which is a mood elevator and is also involved in orgasm. There's vasopressin, which helps with arousal, and also a whole bunch of immunosuppressants, which help to convince the woman's body not to attack the sperm. Okay, so semen's packed with stuff, but what does it all do? One lonely study in 2002 claimed to show evidence of the antidepressant properties of semen. They compared groups of college women who were having sex with and without condoms, and what they found was that women who never used condoms were much less likely to be depressed than those who always used condoms. What's more, among the group of women who never used condoms, those who'd had sex more recently were less likely to be depressed than those who last had sex a while ago. The results of this study are really controversial, and a lot of people still disagree with them. That's because the study was correlative, so the researchers found a relationship between condom use and depression, but they weren't able to prove definitively that it wasn't some other factor that was driving this relationship. What's more, in the 12 years since this study, no one has replicated these results. Now, even though there's been no follow-up study, I think there's a really good case to be made that semen probably does influence women's behaviour. After all, it's packed with all sorts of chemicals that the female body uses in reproduction. I think it's only a matter of time, really, before researchers take a closer look at this question and before we're able to find out once and for all what it is that semen's doing to the female body. and to talk about some of her favourite adaptations for sperm competition. Oh, my favourite traits have to be changes in the genitalia. The fly that I work on has a fold-out penis. Um, so you watch them mate. The male gets on the back of the female and he has an external genitalia that's hard that he sort of taps the female with, sort of like, hey, how about it, honey? 
And if she lets him, then he unfolds this ridiculously long, flexible penis. We have no idea how he manages to actually get that penis to the spermatheca, but he does. Um, one of our students did these excellent dissections where she waited until the flies were mating, dipped them in liquid nitrogen so that they were frozen in the act, and then looked at the genitalia, opened up the female, and some of the males, this little flexible tube was getting all the way into her sperm storage organs and ejaculating exactly where it needed to be. It's just phenomenal. Whereas in humans, it's... I mean, human penises are quite boring compared to other animals. We still see some adaptations. So people say um, the little knob on the end, it's a bit like a plunger. <laughs> it gets any other, other sperm out. And people have even done experiments where they've made fake vaginas and tried to plunge out sperm with different shapes. <laughs> and it turns out that the, the male shape works pretty well. Now, it's not just males who've evolved adaptations for sperm competition. There's a school of thought that females have evolved a few tricks to help them pick out the best males in competitive scenarios. And one of those tricks might just be the female orgasm. In a series of studies in the early 90s, Robin Baker and Mark Bellis tried to show that the female orgasm might be a tool that helps females to use the sperm from the best males. They showed that when a woman orgasms anywhere between one minute before a man orgasms and up to 45 minutes after the man orgasms, then she retains way more sperm from that man. And women who orgasm outside of that window or don't orgasm at all, they don't retain quite as much sperm. They propose that when she orgasms, a woman's cervix dips into the pool of stuff that's hanging around at the upper end of her vagina. And if there's semen there, then that movement helps to pick up the sperm. They use this to build an argument that the female orgasm is a handy sexual selection tool that helps women to filter out the potential fathers for their offspring. In support of their argument, a later study showed that women orgasm more during sex when their partner is highly symmetrical. It's pretty well established that men with very symmetrical faces are more attractive to women, and that symmetry is thought to be an indicator of high genetic quality. So by having more orgasms when their partners are highly symmetrical, women might be biasing paternity towards attractive men that offer their offspring the very best genes. They did run experiments where the poor research assistant had to um, be in the room with a couple having sex and collected the flow back after to see which part of the ejaculate got ejected from the female. And That's a tough job. It's <laughs> I would love to read that job description when he advertised <laughs> for it. Um, a lot of that research has sort of been disputed now, but it, the, I mean, it's very difficult research to do, obviously. The reason why we work on animals is um, because we can do these sort of manipulative experiments that you can't do with humans. Um, and, I mean, my husband said on our very first date that I'm never allowed to experiment on him. So <laughs> that rules out that line of inquiry. <laughs> My name's Eddie. Thanks for listening to Dissecting Love. We'll see you next time. <laughs>